Welcome back to Match Volume. We're your hosts, Emma Desso and Sarah Bringman. We are back this week with another timely episode. With all of the protests going on in response to police brutality throughout the United States and really globally, we've seen a variety of responses from government officials and leaders, some more notable and some more extreme than others. For me, as an international relations major, Hearing the response by President Trump as he threatened the use of the Insurrection Act has been both alarming and intriguing. As I further researched the complexities of the Insurrection Act and the U.S. military, I got further frustrated and confused with the response and decided to contact an expert. For this reason, we are so pleased to explore this topic with incredible USC professor of international relations, Dr. Stephen Lammy. I had the chance to take Professor Lamy's course on foreign policy analysis my junior year and his transnational diplomacy class this past semester, and I can speak from experience when I say that Dr. Lamy is a professor always willing to have a discussion surrounding complex issues and is more than qualified to have this discussion with me today. I was so fortunate to be able to interview him for the show. In this episode, Sarah and Dr. Lamy discuss a myriad of topics, including how international relations relates to this present moment in U.S. history. We know that you will be able to gain valuable insight to this present moment from Dr. Lamy. And so with that, let's get into the interview. Would you start by giving a brief introduction about yourself, maybe your position, what you teach, and anything else you would like to mention? Um, my name is Stephen Lammy, and I'm a professor of international relations, uh, environmental studies, and spatial sciences at USC. Uh, I have been a faculty member for close to 30 years at USC, uh, and I have served in many administrative posts, including for 10 years as the academic dean in Dornsife College, uh, and have been involved in, you know, head of the School of International Relations, et cetera. My real research field is the issues are foreign policy and human rights and human security uh, and international relations theory. So for someone who doesn't know much about the field of IR or um, foreign policy, can you give a brief overview of what it is to study sure. IR or an example of a class that you teach? Yeah, the, the and the field of international relations is, is, a, is a rather interesting one. We're dealing different from political science. Political science is about governments and how governments operate and it's, it is, you know, how governments perform their duties. So I always tell my students that the three core duties of a government are to protect the boundaries of a state, to provide for law and order, and the third is to provide for a means of exchange or an economy. And political science is studying those things within a sense of order and stability. International relations, what makes us different is it's not about the politics of governance, it's about the politics of survival. And so in international relations, we're always dealing with the fact that the international system is anarchic. There's no government, there's no international government. So states are always competing with one another and sometimes in conflict with one another over how you organize the international system. And then of course, states, to provide the protection of their citizens will build up arms and by building up arms they create insecurity in other states this is what we call the security dilemma so in courses of, of in foreign policy you're studying what states do in the international system to provide for those basic things what do they do in terms of 
providing for trade? What do they do in terms of law that providing for order and stability? And what do they do in terms of protecting their citizens? So this is what foreign policy is about. And in foreign policy, we look at the different actors that try to influence that are domestic actors, but also the, the actors outside the system that try to influence what we do. So that, you know, essentially, and you know, international relations is about the issues that define the international system. So we usually say there are sort of, every state has material goals, meaning what they're trying to do is they're trying to secure resources or trading, et cetera. Those are material goals. And then they have uh, ideational goals. And those ideational goals are they want a system that's democratic. They want a system that's a liberal economy, capitalist, or they want a system that's communist, and they, or they want a system that is state owned enterprises, whatever. So each state has different sort of goals in the system that are ideational. Uh, and the United States has been the key actor in that system for many, many years and has led the system uh, in terms of it's a liberal economy, meaning a capitalist economy, and the promotion of democracy has been a feature of the international system since the end of World War II. Um, the problem basically we face now in today's world is that the Trump administration is withdrawing from its leadership role. And one example just happened this week or last week when the Trump administration said uh, they're going to withdraw our troops from uh, Germany. And uh, that's a NATO commitment and it undermines the whole U.S. commitment to the NATO alliance. Uh, and it's already causing a lot of trouble in Europe among our NATO allies saying, why are you doing this? And the reason is, is that the president, President Trump, is angry at uh, Mrs. Merkel, the, uh, the chancellor of Germany, for refusing to come to the G7 meetings that are, he just uh, put up very recently without forethought and without planning. And she says it's too dangerous to travel and to have these meetings, and there's not been enough preparation for these meetings. And mm -hmm. he's mad, so he's taking his toys and going away. We'll come back to Trump and his administration's foreign policy. So, but in one of your classes, we read a case that had to do with the expansion and expression of executive power by the president. And it was the um, George W. Bush and the torture case after 9-11. And executive power has become even more of a topic of conversation in the ways that President Trump has responded to the more recent crises and protests in the nation. And one example being the threat of using the military against civilians, which is one of the topics we're going to cover today. And he was implying implementing the Insurrection Act. So would you give an overview of what the Insurrection Act is and why it's been important in the past or how it's been used in the past? Yeah, I mean, the it's an interesting act. I mean, it's there's a lot of, a lot of disagreement. It's very ambivalent in many ways, and it's very specific mm -hmm. in others. So um, it's based on the assumption that the preservation of law and order is, is, is the responsibility of, of, of states government and local government. So that's one of the foundational views that the law and order is the responsibility of the state of California and the city of Pasadena. Uh, that, that's who's responsible for that. But mm -hmm. you begin to question that. It's that was after 9-11 um, and there's more concern about security and 
many people started arguing. So this is the most recent debate uh, about it. And they started arguing for more federal authority. So if you look at, for example, I think now it's called the Northern Command. Uh, there are two sort of active duty uh, military brigades, army brigades that are on call for, as a federal force. Uh, and that, but that had to do with terrorism and the, and the issue of potential invasion or an insurrection led by foreign powers, not foreign powers, but foreign sources like terrorists that were in, embedded. Um, now, one has to remember that the federal role of the federal government is limited by another uh, act, and that's the, the Posse Comitatus Act. Uh, and that was the act of Congress, uh, you know, that says that no federal troops or law enforcement can um, be involved in, in the United States uh, for law enforcement unless there's an act of Congress for a change in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So there are some protections there and, and of course a governor could put you know, could basically put into effect or call for the posse comitatus act but if you look at the history of the 1807 uh insurrection act the the first discussion of the use of federal forces if you go way way back was i think in the seven, late 1780s was the shays rebellion in western massachusetts mm -hmm. where the farmers were kind of angry at, at the federal government for excise taxes, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, the feds never intervened in that one in terms of a federal militia they, or the state. They, it was a, pr a private army that was raised to deal with that. Um, but that resulted in what was called the Militia Clause, and that's Article One of the Constitution, and this is where the president will lead in terms of putting together militia. Um, that led to, in late, again, the late 1790s, I think it was. I'm not quite sure of my dates. Uh, mm -hmm. What was called the Calling Forth Act, and uh, authorized the president to call up the militia. Um, mm -hmm. But this was again more about invasion. It was about a foreign right. force. It was about invasion. And then, of course, the, the the other was the 1790s. This is Washington. One of Washington's high point as president, he led uh, uh, a federal militia against the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania. Uh, mm -hmm. and, but he did it. He did it right. He went to the uh, at a Supreme Court justice and right. asked that Supreme Court just, justice, "Would this be legal?" And the justice said, "Well, it's quite clear that the local authorities and the state authorities can't deal with this. So yeah, you've got to go in because this could result in real problems for Pennsylvania and for the, this young nation." And so they went in, and that. You know, was the, the the result of that was in seventeen, I think ninety five or so, ninety six was the Militia Act, and then in eight, then the eighteen oh seven was the Insur Insurrection Act, and that authorized the president to use federal troops and militia to enforce laws and prevent insurrections. Now, there have been recent. It, it, now, the interesting thing about the Insurrection Act, it's not just about armed issues; it can also be about right. natural disasters, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The last time I think it was used against a so-called insurrection was 1992 here in Los Angeles right. uh, in the Rodney King riots. But that was because, for a couple of reasons. One, of course, the Rodney King riots were a riot where the police force, the LAPD, was a target of this. And uh, yes, there were uh, the militia, the, um, uh, the National Guard was brought in, 
but the other thing that was is I I believe they sent in a, a, a Marines, uh, uh -huh. and those Marines were sent in as a precautionary note. But it wasn't. It was basically to keep to help keep law and order, not to suppress a, a, an insurrection. Right. But this is where it starts getting a little fuzzy. And then, of course, we brought in the troops with Katrina. You're, you know, this is mm -hmm. the famous statement made by Bush, too, when he said, you're doing a hell of a job, Brownie. Uh, and he wasn't doing a hell of a job. FEMA was blowing this. And so they had to bring in the military to help save the, the area. So right. there, there, are, there are examples and there are sort of there are anecdotes and, and analogical reasoning, I guess, or analogical uh, uh, evidence that this thing can work. The danger we have, though, and, and you brought it up, and that is when there's such a fear within a society that people are brought in that interpret the Constitution and interpret the act in such a way to allow for behavior that challenges the very core of who we are as a society. Right. And you brought that up, and this is the state. This was, of course, the actions of John Yu, uh, and uh, in terms of extending what torture is, and 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 basically trying to uh, extend the definition of torture to allow for real torture before it was called torture. Uh, and this is the idea: is that it, Trump is not the only problem here. This this is the, the senator from Arkansas, Senator Cotton, is. A real, you know, he he wrote the piece in the New York Times, which basically got the New York Times editor. He wasn't fired, but he had to step down. But the you know, Cotton wants us to use the federal authorities because he th don't think right. the states are doing their job. But it's not that the states aren't doing their job; it's that the states aren't doing the job that President Trump or Senator Cotton want them to do. Yeah. And 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 that's where you have people when the law is so ambiguous. And there are different interpretations. You can basically, if you get somebody who wants to use this force for their own purposes, they're going to manipulate. And so, for example, you can imagine a situation when you send, I mean, you send in a military office that's led by, let's say that it's led by a colonel. And the colonel says, well, I'm not going up against these people. That right. guy could be replaced by somebody else who does it. So we're mm -hmm. going to get the person, we're going to choose a person that matches us. So you can, you know. For example, he would, you know, he wouldn't choose Mattis to do it after what Mattis said, but he could right. choose a, a general or a, a colonel or whatever that is willing to do this for him. It, I think it's, I think it's really important because there's so much ambiguity in terms of what it's, it says or what it doesn't say, I guess, uh, because it just authorizes the president to use federal troops and militia to enforce laws and prevent insur insurrections. So right. they could define Black Lives Matter as an insurrection, uh, right? And boom, you know, we got the military yeah. on the streets. Just two clarifying questions, because the National Guard has been intertwined into the Insurrection Act in the past. With when it was brought up with Little Rock, Arkansas, um, when I looked it up, the National Guard, of course, was blocking the kids from going to school, and so the Insurrection Act was used to bring in federal forces to allow the kids to go to school. Um, so how is the National Guard different from the U.S. military, just to clarify for listeners? Well, well the National Guard usually is, is the, the governor of each state has the jurisdiction over the use of the National Guard. 
in the case of, of uh, the, the racial issues in, in Little Rock, Arkansas and, and, and Alabama, notice this, the, the, under the Eisenhower administration, the National Guard was federalized, meaning the president. Okay. Uh, and so you can, the, that can be done. The, okay. uh, any president can federalize the National Guard and use, and, and then they would give the particular orders because they couldn't trust Governor Wallace to right. use them appropriately. And the, the federal law said you protect the black students trying to enroll at the university. So the, the, the and, and you know, and, and re recently we've you've been using the National Guard in many different cases. I mean, the National Guard was used in both Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, for certain jobs, et cetera, protecting. Mm -hmm bases and protecting uh, the embassies and things like that. I mean, my, my brother-in-law was in the New York State National Guard and he went over to, to Iraq and was, they were, they were, their job was to guard the, the, uh, the air base. Uh, that was their guard. So they can be wow. sent over for federal purposes, et cetera. And I think you should also consider this though. Here's the danger of the National Guard. And I'm gonna make a statement that's totally a value judgment, okay, on my part, but I'm gonna make okay. it. <laughs> the best trained uh, civil servants, not civil servants, the best trained government uh, officers and government officials are in the U.S. military. The Army, the Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, and the Marines. They are the best trained. One of the reasons why we always have to call in the military is because we do not have equivalency in terms of any federal agency that has personnel that are so well trained. Mm -hmm. I cannot say the same for all the National Guard. Now, many in the National Guard have been in the military and they come back and they join the National Guard. So you get some good people uh, working there. But there's, there's inconsistency there. And the evidence, there's plenty of evidence, but the, the, obviously the glaring evidence was what happened with the abuse of prisoners in Iraq and mm -hmm. Abu Ghraib. Uh, those were National Guard. Those were National Guard, and they were not well trained. They were not disciplined. They didn't follow the rules of engagement. Uh, mm -hmm. They didn't know anything about, or they didn't appear to know anything about Geneva Conventions, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is so. There's a. There can be a. There can be a real discrepancy between the professional quality of the real military the active duty military and the national guard mm -hmm. uh, just you know and and so there's there's a there's a there can be a big gap between who's ready to respond to these things and who's trained another bit of evidence i would use which just celebrated an anniversary was the kent state killings right the kent state killings those were national guard who panicked, uh, and some would say panicked, and they, those were unarmed students that were demonstrating against the Vietnam War. Uh, and there's a lot of fuzzy evidence there that they overreacted in that particular situation and, and killed students that were, were unarmed. Um, right. So I think the thing is, is that, that you know, there. And I'm not saying that wouldn't happen with the regular army, but the regular army and regular the, the regular forces, the active duty military are much better trained. But, right. and here's where the but comes in, they are not trained to go against their own citizens. Right. They're trained basically to protect our country against 
outsiders, of forces or forces within the state that represent a different set of values and interests that are really trying to create another government and trying to overthrow the government as it exists. Uh, and certainly the National Guard can do that if they're very well trained, but they're not trained to go, you, you know, law, as I said at the very beginning of the talk, the, 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 the preservation of law and order is a responsibility of state and local governments. And basically the, the National Guard is usually brought in as a, not as the frontline force, but as the backdrop, as they, did, they just did in LA. We had the National Guard right down uh, in, at the, you know, basically at LA Live, that's where they were. Right. And they were backup. They, they weren't on the front lines. The police were still on the front lines. Right. And Cotton and uh, Senator Cotton has been basically said, look, none of this would happen if we'd sent in the military and they could clean up things in a couple of days. Oh, sure, sure they could. Right. But, you know, but look at, that's not what they, they, they're there to protect the Constitution. Right. And that's what we're yeah. hearing from the generals. Yeah. So I guess moving into Trump's call for the insurrection, what was his reasoning and for threatening the use of the insurrection. Like why, what were his motives? Why do you think he used that, such a large threat in a press conference? I, I think number one, the president is motivated by one thing and that's get reelected. And that might be the same for every, anyone at this time of year, but he's very <laughs> much organized. He's, he's organizing all his thoughts toward reelection. And he has decided that the thing that's going to close the gap with Biden or he will he will overtake Biden is becoming the law and order president. Uh, and so the police were not doing what he wanted. Uh, he probably was not very pleased with policemen who knelt with the demonstrators. He was mm -hmm. not pleased with police who did not, um, you know, basically kick down the doors and knock some heads. Uh, right. you know, he made statements like, once the looting starts, then the shooting starts. I mean, and he basically was not someone who was trying to find accommodation and be, try to find amicable solutions to this. He was somebody that basically said, we clear the streets. And right. that's his rhetoric. That rhetoric fits his base. He has made no statement uh, that shows any empathy with the, uh, the, so he's basically looking out and saying, look, the, if the police don't do it, if the governors won't call in the National Guards to hammer some people, I'm going to call in um, the military because I have that power and I'm going to have the military clear things up. Well, mm -hmm. you talk about litigation, state governors will just go crazy. Even George Washington was questioned <coughs> during the um, Whiskey Rebellion. Right. Pennsylvania, he was questioned by the Pennsylvania government governor at that time saying, you can't bring in, you can't do federal troops in here. And he goes, yes, I can. And so you can imagine, let's, let's say just hypothetically, let's say he decides to bring, send in people to Cal, you know, troops to California because he doesn't think Gavin Newsom is using the, the uh, national guard uh, appropriately. How do you think that's going to go over? He could bring, he could bring in, you know, a battalion of Marines from Camp Pendleton. Uh, you know, you could bring in the army from Fort Irwin, you know, that kind of stuff. They're here. And that's not going to go over pretty well. And it doesn't go over well with the troops. Hey, wait a minute. I'm not here to go after my own citizens. Right. And, and considering the, the fact that many of our, our citizens 
many of our minorities are part of the military that raises another sort of question. But he was right. not getting, he was not getting, he was not getting the kind of coverage he wanted in terms of being the law and order president. He was right. not getting, he was not getting the credit for sending in the military and cleaning things up. Now, there's still a chance that usually these kinds of demonstrations, et cetera, sort of heat up in July and August. And there's still, you know, with all these different, now the Georgia situation, and now there may be right. some situations in California, uh, mm -hmm. then it could really blow up again and he could have that chance uh, to do it. But uh, I'm not sure uh, on this one. I'm not, I'm, this, he's, it, it, it's not it's not meeting his expectations and it's not fitting with his plans for re-election he's, he's right. not leading this so i mean you know this well enough to know that we look at this from different perspectives so what right. would it look like if let's 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 do a counterfactual what, what would it look like if either hillary clinton or joe biden or even barack obama were president you, you, we can only guess, but it would probably be much more collaborative, much more cooperative, mm -hmm. and there would be a meeting of police chiefs, National Guard leaders, right. as well as active military leaders coming together and discussing how best to deal with this issue. There's no discussion. It's the same thing that Gordon Brown, we talked about this in 403, you know, Gordon mm -hmm. Brown was sort of appalled that there was no meeting called among the world leaders to talk about how you deal with COVID. Right. There, was no, there was no major. So the, the notion of collaborating and cooperating and sharing ideas, there's a way of doing this. And the military, as I said earlier, the military leaders are the best trained people. It's not surprising to me that the president shows former generals like Mattis and others to be part of his leadership team because they're so well trained. But every single one of them now has come up against the president. I mean, Colin Powell has come out against. So if you look at our top military leaders, they're saying this is not the way to do things. This is not the way right. to send in the troops to, you know, it, it's just, it's appalling in, in, in that sense. And it will really undermine, it. first of all, it undermines governors. So every governor is going to be concerned, except for those who are firmly in the president's camp. Uh, mm -hmm. And but most governors will be undermined and will not like it. And it's a it's a violation of their sovereignty and their authority. So you mentioned you just mentioned this again, but you had mentioned it earlier is that his actions have been criticized by many past military leaders like Colin Powell and General Mattis, and then also by some other foreign leaders um, recently. So, but what are their main arguments against? this call for military action or threat of military action military leaders aren't aren't running for election uh, right. and military leaders have worldviews and i don't agree with all of them but i, I like that they tend to be more principled uh and they follow if they're in the military they swear allegiance to the constitution uh and 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 the stability of the state and and uh and the respect for and implementation of the of constitutional I mean, laws and regulations is really critical and i think that in this particular case you have a lot of political leaders that have constituencies that might identify with uh the demonstrators so that for mm -hmm. some for some of them it's just an attempt to 
placate their own domestic constituencies, but for others, mm -hmm. they're principled and they, they, they run democratic societies too. And they don't want the so-called leader of the internet of, of the, this goes back to our discussion of IR. They don't want right. the, the, the leader of the international system, at least the United States, who has professed these sort of, um, you know, liberal Lockean values of, you know, capitalism and law, rule of law. And, and they don't want that the United States to be, you know, to undermine those principles because their societies are based on similar principles uh, where this, in, in the constitution, states should follow the constitution uh, in order to provide for stability, but also provide for the voice of the people. And this goes totally against, this is, this is using your military. This is what dictators do. This is right. what uh, authoritarian leaders do. So it's a, it's a move toward authoritarianism. Uh, and and it, it's basically, one could look at it as an attempt to use the military for a coup d'etat. Some people yeah. are bringing up this. I don't necessarily, my wife and I were talking about this, and I don't necessarily believe in this, but there are a lot of people out there now saying that if, if Trump loses the election, he may not resign. He may not, he may, may not leave the White House. Yeah. may say that basically that it was a rigged election and he's setting us, us up for this with vote by mail is, is there's no evidence to say vote by mail is bad but i mean you know he's saying that they're going to cheat etc and they he could actually say i'm not leaving and and i i can use the military to keep me in office and so right. setting a precedent is yeah i mean that, pre, that it's scary but we might be to that point because you haven't you have someone who's has probably never read the Constitution and probably doesn't understand the Constitution and someone who basically says, hey, I'm president, I can do exactly what I want. This is not somebody right. who um, is somebody who believes in, in the strength of the United States based on rule of law. This is, a, this is a opportunist and a Machiavellian, and you know what that means. You mentioned it earlier of how ambiguous some of the languages in the law but do you think that some of the descriptors of it being antiquated are accurate and why the well, I, think, I think that I, I i do think the, the context and time is important in terms of how you interpret a law uh, mm -hmm. and, and certainly early on it was very important some of the early acts uh, you know, uh, the Militia Act and th those were, and the Calling Forth Act, those were important because there were, it was a young state, a young nation right. uh, with, uh, and they needed those acts to protect it and to give some credibility to um, the federal government, which didn't have very much credibility at that particular time. Uh, right. And so there was a faith in the rule of law, and that's I mentioned John Locke, but it's that kind of Lockean notion that the rule of law matters, but there were still a lot of things were decided by force. And, you know, for example, let's say the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s uh, had gone against uh, Washington and Washington couldn't draw force. I'm, I'm not so sure if the Whiskey Rebellion was not effectively dealt with, like the Shays Rebellion relied on private forces because um, it was the Articles of Confederation at that time. But I think if with Washington not having a victory, that gave more credibility to the federal government. Now, the federal government has had more and more credibility. So now our concern is not the weakness of the federal government and the weakness, but the, go the, the, the rules now are, is it be or the question now is, is the federal government becoming too powerful? 
in this ex in the executive branch in particular becoming too powerful. Because when you read something, uh, it says that the the the, the, the eighteen oh seven in, in Insurrection Act authorizes the president to use federal troops and militia to enforce laws and prevent insurrections. Now there have been challenges to that, many challenges to that, and, and further explanation. Uh, but I still think that you know that Trump could make a case that would go before the Supreme Court probably that hey I need to do this because Cal let's say California burns like it did again like it did in uh, in, in the LAPD as the target and that doesn't right. there's an argument that uh, Trump could say we're I'm sending in you know I'm sending up a battalion from from Camp Pendleton of Marines to get onto the streets and this sort of stuff because this is an inter insurrection and the LAPD can't handle this and neither can the National Guard. That I don't I don't know if there's anything that Governor Newsom could do on that one. Um, if yeah. it, it, and so it, it still can be used. Do you think that the broad terminology has led to the continued survival of the act? Oh sure, sure. I mean and then uh, and, in a, and there's probably 9,000 lawyers now thinking about how you, and, and maybe members of Congress thinking about how you can add, uh, you know, basically amendments to the act and right. that sort of stuff, or, and to, or right now is thinking about, we, we, better, we better deal with this Insurrection Act because it's now in the press. I mean, I think there was an article in the New York Times on it. There was an article in the Atlantic Monthly on it. So it, it, it's, it's a topic of discussion. That's right. just as, as you mentioned very appropriately at the beginning of our conversation, just as is the issue related to torture and the, and the torture acts were brought up at the, at the time of, of, of the 9-11 uh, attacks and the terrorist attacks on the United States. Um, mm -hmm. So context is important. And right now the context is, but the, the issue is um, we have a president and, and, and I'm not, particularly talking about Trump, because it could happen to any president, but we have a president, it could have been Nixon, it could have been Obama, that basically doesn't believe that uh, the law enforcement is doing what should be done, and therefore is looking for a way to essentially override the existing, the existing application of law and order to serve his particular interests and purposes. Mm -hmm. And, that, and yeah. it allows him to do that. How do you think that Trump's administration's actions have changed the worldview of the U.S. and how his presidency ha will change how we will be involved in foreign policy in the future and how we'll, seriously we will be taken, even if it's the next president following him? Well, if, if, if Biden wins the presidency, that Biden's going to have to spend two, probably two, maybe even three years restoring our credibility in the world in terms of our alliances and our treaties, et cetera. If you look at what the Trump administration has undone uh, in terms of our relationships with our treaty allies, I mean, mm -hmm. we, we talked about this very much in our, our dip diplomacy class, but yeah. look what he's doing now is unraveling a lot of the arms control agreements. Uh, he's basically disrupted the, the, the common diplomatic practices, with his reaction, with his uh, his interventions with North Korea, which have resulted in nothing but a mess, his interventions at the Arctic Council, his interventions with Paris Accords, I can go on and on of different things he's just undermined. 
Um, right. You can be, you don't have to be in favor of the Paris Accords, but you can be there and you don't say anything and you basically are, you can be an incrementalist or you can actually be a postponer and saying, well, we don't really want to do that yet because we're not ready for that kind of switch. You don't have to basically dismiss it as being right. And so his dismissal of the importance of science is a uh -huh. real issue. Uh, his dismissal of international law and his unawareness of international law and his is trying he's trying to undermine you know he's now trying to undermine the ICC uh, because he's worried that the ICC is going to go after some American military leaders so he's now undermining the ICC so he's trying to basically roll back a lot of the progress we've made at the global level where America was the lead now we didn't lead right. with the ICC but we accepted it as the, the the international system is moving in that direction. So right. as you know, there are a lot of books now being written and stuff about the end of the liberal order and the fact that the jungle is what, even the, the neocons, Bob, Robert Kagan, the jungle is growing back is the title of his uh, book where you know he's saying that the, the Machiavellian realists are taking back over and the jungle is growing back and civilization is being undermined. And right. so Trump identifies more with the Putins and Orbans uh, and the Balaceros of the world than he does, and also some of the, even the leadership of China in a certain way. Uh, yeah. he, he likes that kind of, so I, we've undermined, our soft power is gone. Right. Uh, you know, and soft power is the attractiveness of your values, as you know, and the attractiveness mm -hmm. of, of, of your ideas, uh, your ideational goals. We're, we don't have, I mean, our, that soft power is gone. I mean, the only soft power we have left is, is Hollywood in a certain sense, Even, you know, and, and, and now people can't go to theaters. But I right. think the, the next president, if it's not Trump, is going to have to undermine it. Now, the second part of that answer to that question is if Trump wins the election, which is very possible because of the voting behavior of America, uh, yes. he may undermine, he may go even further. Uh, and you might see the United States um, changing its role within international organizations like the United Nations, et cetera. He may decide to go with a more unilateral approach. He may pull out of uh, the World Bank and the IMF and those kinds of organizations. He's already after the WTO. Um, yeah. and so he may pull out of those organizations and just like China, create more unilateral kinds of organizations based on like-minded citizens. He may create a much more nationalistic system. Um, liberal internationalism is what is being undermined. And he doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand what it is. He doesn't understand the importance of America playing a leadership role. Uh, he just sees this as essentially, I'm going to change the world and make it less costly for the United States to get involved in this. I mean, yeah. moving the troops out of Germany is so stupid uh, because it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a linchpin for America's role in Europe right. where we have, and it's also that that's, it's a very important placement of troops near Russia, but also near, that's where the Africa command is, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. And so it's just, I mean, and a, and a thinking person doesn't do that. And he surrounded himself with people who never questioned him. I think you kind of answered this, but do you think for urgent matters like climate change and stuff, do you think it's really detrimental that we've been removed and our soft power is kind of 
it disappeared since he's entered office. Because when we need to be all together on a, on a singular issue that's urgent. Well, I remember the big discussion when Ronald Reagan pulled the United States out of UNESCO because he didn't like what they, we were doing in UNESCO. And mm -hmm. I was in Washington at that time working on some project. And I remember talking to a diplomat who actually was a Republican, not a fan of Reagan. And he said, the president has to realize this. If you're not there, you have no voice. Uh, and the thing is, is that the world's going to move on with climate change. And there's going to be a lot of money spent in, uh, by public and private actors on alternatives to fossil fuels. Uh, and there's a lot of money out there to find alternatives. And we'll be led by countries that have, you know, in Europe primarily, but we'll be led by countries that will have access not only to um, the rules, but also they will have access to the technology that's produced and the profits that come from that technology. And we'll still right. be, under this president, we'll still be protecting people who are mining coal <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, trying to use coal. I mean, th those companies are now selling their coal to India. Instead of doing that, what we should be doing is working with India to try to get them to look at solar power or wind power or some other alternative. But instead, we're trying to sell them coal, uh, right. which is polluting the country. So we're way behind. We're out of step. Uh, we're on the first verse when the rest of the world is on the fourth verse. Uh, and um, it's just not healthy for where we are. And it's all because of nationalistic, neo-mercantilist, but nationalistic policies that serve the electoral purposes of the president. The, 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 the oil industry and the coal industry still have influence in Washington with both Democrats and Republicans, don't get me wrong, right. but we've got to pay attention. I mean, the very fact that in a time where we should be protecting Anwar, this president is talking about opening up and drilling. And we don't need it. We've got enough oil without opening up Anwar, but he's still talking about doing that. And yeah. it's the courts that are holding him back. And now he's filling the courts with people who think like he does. And so we may be going backward, uh, even if we have a Democrat in the office or, or a, a more moderate Republican. We may be going backwards because the courts are now filled with with Trump uh, appointees. Right. I, so, I, know this, I, I know I sound very partisan in that sense stuff, but I'm, I'm not trying not to attack, I'm attacking his ideas and not necessarily the person. So I wanna let you go in a second, but if I'll give you um, the floor if there's anything else that you would like to say, or if there's something you would like students to think about going forward. Well, I think that's a really good question, and thank you for for that. I mean, I don't have a, I'm not on a soapbox. I'm not trying to say anything, but I think it's extremely important. I, I appreciate what you're doing with this. I mean, you know, this whole idea of having conversations that students can listen to, because um, I remember, and you've heard me say this, I think, in class either 341 or 403. But the idea basically is that. Um, John Kerry, when he spoke two years ago at Bovard Auditorium on environmental issues, looked out mm -hmm. at the audience and said to the students, he said, we're in the situation we're in now because you guys didn't vote. And I think it's so important that students spend their time, spend some of their time becoming more aware of the different issues and, and trying to understand these issues and talking about them and talking and, and about these issues and open and sharing ideas and not shutting out 
any particular perspective. There are different views on these issues, and we have to recognize the diversity of opinions, et cetera. And I think both the left and the right tend to want to shout out the other side. We have to have conversations. We have to have conversations about these issues and express our opinions, but we have to then participate. It's such an easy thing to do, and that is to vote. I don't know the name of the commission, but a commission just delivered the report last week, and it's a commission on changing American politics. And it was led uh -huh. by a, a political theorist, I think from Harvard, and another gentleman who I don't remember where he was from. But like one of the things, little things they put in there, they, for example, they called for a year of service, that everybody has a year of service. Oh, I think that's such a great idea. Another one they said is that it would be, uh, you would have to vote. It would be a requirement that you vote, and there would be sort of a fine if you didn't vote. Uh, mm -hmm. And a lot of Europe, a lot of European, Belgium has that as a rule. You can't, you can't apply for government, you know, loans or anything else like that unless you show you have voted. So a kid yeah. couldn't get a student loan uh, if they if they didn't vote. So they, and they had other changes that were really important. And we've got to, we should be talking about how to reform our government and how to make it more democratic and not being, we should not be talking about how we give more power to an executive branch, whether it's led by a Republican or a Democrat, how we concentrate more power, coercive power in the hands of somebody that can use it against their own citizens. Instead, we should be talking about how we can get more citizen input to these things and students need to be leading this. It's your generation that's going to lead this, not mine, my generation. Mm -hmm screwed up a long time ago. You should look at a New York Times on June 6th, um, last Saturday, I think, or, or, there was a, the doctor who's the health minister for British Columbia. She has the most wonderful phrase that I'm trying to share with people. She's, her name is Dr. Bonnie Henry. She was a naval uh, surgeon. So she's a medical okay. doctor that went through the Navy. And she said, this is our time to be kind, to be calm and to be safe. Wouldn't we like a leader that used a phrase like that? This is our time to be kind, to be calm, and to be safe. So I'll leave you with that. That's awesome. So thank you so much, Professor. Right. Take care, Sarah, and keep in touch, okay? I will. Thank you again. Bye-bye. That was Sarah Bregman and Dr. Stephen Lammy. That's all we have for today. We hope that this conversation was educational and helpful to you. Match Volume is a production by Annenberg Media through USC's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. This episode was made by yours truly, Emma Desso and Sarah Bringman. Thanks for joining us.